Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So good to have you here with us this morning. My name is Matthew. If we haven't met, I'm the pastor here at Trinity on the east side. And if we haven't met, we should do so afterwards. Maybe we can find each other out by the coffee or something. Uh, I want to thank David Walker for being with us here today. Uh, David, is uh, he's a worship leader in Snellville uh, with Grace uh, Church. What's it called? Grace something? Grace Snellville. Uh, he also is a teacher at the 10,000 Fathers Worship School that Aaron Keyes and a bunch of these guys started a number of years ago that trains up worship leaders from all over the world uh, to become worship pastors. And so one of the cool things that, cool connections we have at Trinity is with the school and with Aaron, and he reached out to us a while ago and said, how can we help you and, and come alongside and partner with what God's doing at Trinity? And so for the next couple of months, people from the school are going to be here uh, like leading, leading us in worship. And so it's awesome to have David here. He's an amazing, humble, gifted, real guy. And so if you, if you get a chance to say hey to him afterwards, just inundate him with people afterwards. Um, he'll be sitting up here at the front waiting to talk. Um, <laughs> that's not true. But anyway, it's really a blessing having them here today. So um, I'm going to be reading from the book of Daniel. We're going to read the third chapter of Daniel. And uh, um, this is, uh, n- no joke, this is the longest reading I've ever done here at Trinity. So um, I hope you have coffee. It's about four minutes and 45 seconds at the nine o'clock. So we'll just, we're just going to settle in. You ready? It's a story. It's going to feel good. All right, here we go. Daniel chapter three. So King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue whose height was 60 cubits. Uh, that's like 90 feet. And whose width was six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent for the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to assemble and come to the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province assembled for the dedication of the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And when they were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, harp, drum, an entire musical ensemble, you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore... As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Accordingly, at this time, certain Chaldeans came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble shall fall down and worship the golden statue. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship the golden statue that you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in so that they uh, brought in so they brought those men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and that you do not worship the golden statue that I have set up? 
Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the drum, and the entire musical ensemble, to fall down and worship the statue that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary. He ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And so the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Now, because the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the furnace of blazing fire. And then the king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that we threw bound into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. He replied, but I see four men unbound walking in the middle of the fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a God. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men and the hair of their heads was not singed and their tunics were not harmed and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. And therefore I will make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Everything is very extreme with this king. Um, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Way to go, everyone. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word speaks to us because uh, it comes to us with the spirit. We thank you, Lord, that um, that's actually the only... Uh, <laughs> the only hope we have of taking a story like this and having it speak uh, to our life, to what is going on, to the things that are rattling around within us right now. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray for you, the Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and speak. Come and take these ancient words and this ancient story and breathe fresh life into it and use it to call us to more. 
We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we've been talking for, uh, well, for last week and then this week and then the rest of November. We're, we're looking at this book of Daniel. It's a, it's a work of prophecy that takes place in the 6th century when the people of God, the Judeans, find themselves in Babylon, in a land where they are exiled. And Ashley was here last week, and if you haven't listened to her sermon, I would just encourage you to go and listen to it because it's awesome, and she also sets up the next month of study. But uh, what, what she laid out for us was this idea that Babylon is, is meant to be a, an imaginative and metaphorical place for us today. It's a real place, too, and it's a real place in these stories. But in the Jewish imagination, in the, in the biblical imagination, Babylon was also a way of describing not Jerusalem, not home, not where you're supposed to be, not the land where God is, but this foreign land. And yet Babylon's not a place that we're meant to try to leave. In fact, Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 29 that Babylon's a place where you build houses and you do good work and you plant vineyards. Some of us start families. All of us start spiritual families in this place. We set up shop here. We build businesses. We bless the city. We seek justice. We vote in elections. We celebrate holidays. We keep birthdays. This place matters. And so we seek the welfare of Babylon. We seek the welfare of this place, but we never forget that this isn't our place, that the culture of this place, just because we, just because we live in the midst of this place, it is different from abdicating to the spirit of it. And so that's a kind of a tricky road that we walk as Christians. It's a tricky road that we're meant to sort of, I think, uh, wrestle through as believers in Jesus. And it actually has been the way it has always been for followers of Jesus. To try to navigate, how do we live in a place and, and be a part of it, and yet in some way be separate from it? And so what we are calling this series is the faith of the church because the idea that one of the things that holds us together, one of the things that grounds us, that roots us in the middle of Babylon is what we are most deeply believing in. What is central to us? What are we orienting ourselves uh, around? Which this story speaks to alternatives to that. What's an alternative thing that you can sort of orbit your life around, that you can give yourself to, or to say it the way that they would say it in, in, in Daniel? What is another thing that you can worship? What is an idol that you can worship instead of the one true God? We're going to talk about idols today, and every time we talk about idols, people immediately assume that it doesn't mean anything to us because we don't have idols in our culture today, you know? Uh, idols are found in primitive places. They're found in very, you know, far distant lands, or they're way back, you know, in our, our story, like thousands of years ago. But they're not relevant things for us today, and yet I would, I would just say at the beginning, and I'm going to try to try to back this up, but I, I would say that probably one of the most crucial uh, questions that we need to be asking for our life is, what are the idols that I'm worshiping? What is my life oriented? What idols is my life oriented around? And I, actually, idolatry in your life and in my life is the reason it is responsible for our greatest unhappiness. The reason that we find ourselves today most despairing, those of us who do, is because of the idols in our life. So, just three quick points from this story, uh, since we just you know read for 25 minutes. Uh, I'm going to say, first of all, that Babylon is a place full of idols. It's a place uh, full of idols. And idols do not have to be golden statues or stone carvings. They don't even have to be things. Uh, an idol can simply be something that I orient myself around. It's something that I draw my sense of value from, something that says something about me. 
Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who we don't normally quote here, he said that <laughs> idols are, um, he said that there are more idols in the world than there are realities. There are more idols in the world than there are realities, which I think is great because what Nietzsche does um, is he, he's exposing this idea that what an idol is is a substitute. What an idol is is a stand-in. It's a pseudo. It's not the real thing. I mean, everything from a golden statue of King Nebuchadnezzar versus the real Nebuchadnezzar, but even more so, an idol is anything that says it's something, but it's actually a false version of that. It's not the real thing. And yet we take our questions to these things and we expect them to answer the questions about us that are plaguing us, that keep us awake at night, the things that we're desperate to to find out. When I was a little kid, uh, I remember like growing up in the church, you know, I had a a really sophisticated understanding of idolatry. And so I thought like, and when we talked about idols, we just talked about sports cars. That's what an idol was, was a sports car because you would worship it by washing it on the weekend and like you would feel good about yourself. And I didn't have a sports car because I was a little kid, but I had a trapper keeper with a Lamborghini on it. And which was almost, which was like the same thing when you were nine. And so I I remember though, just thinking like um, that this thing, like somehow like if I could ever have a car like this, it would just communicate so much about me. But most of all, it would communicate that I was the sort of person you'd want to be friends with, right? Because when you're a kid, you're just desperate for social acceptance. Then you grow out of that and you become an adult and you don't need people to like you anymore. So anyway, when I was a kid, though, I really needed people to like me. And that's not true at all. Anyway, so I thought that if I, just, if I could just have this thing, if I could just have this thing, and it wasn't the thing itself, it was the thing that the thing would give me. It was the promise that the thing would keep. If I had this, then I would feel this way. My life would feel in a certain way. I would get the sort of friends or acceptance or attaboys or boy, you're cool that I was desperate to try to find. Idols are not things necessarily. They're actually, um, they're objects, they're ideas, but really they're laden with promises. And when we build our life around receiving these promises. This is called worship. David Pallison, who is a Christian psychiatrist, uh, defines idolatry this way. He says, an idol is anything that holds title to your heart's functional trust. Functional is a huge word there because we talk about, <clears throat> we talk about trusting a lot. Like we trust in our, our, our democracy. We trust in our elections or here in church, we say we trust in Jesus. But the functional trust is what are you actually depending on? Like what is actually going to come through for you? And if it doesn't, then you are in a place of despair. That's functional trust. An idol is anything that holds title to our heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, or delight besides Jesus Christ. Many of us assume, therefore, that an idol has to be a bad thing, but actually the more a thing is good, the easier it is for it to become an idol. Whether it's uh, love, relationships, family, success, it's so easy. Comfort, achievement, productivity. It's so easy for these things to actually become defining statements over our life or gods that we give our life to the worship of. Therefore, idols typically are subversive, they're invisible. And they tend to be something that is tied to the deep desires in your heart. And the deep desires in your heart, while there is some sort of like a common ground that we all share, they're different than the person sitting right next to you. They are distinct. You are looking for slightly different things than the person sitting right in front of you and right behind you. 
Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, which is a great little book on idolatry, gives these as sort of signs for how to discern our own idols. He says, anything that absorbs your heart, imagine, your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And so what are, when you find yourself in a place of solitude, you know, like uh, in a waiting room and your phone's battery is dead, you know, the dreaded, what am I going to do now? Um, what do you give your thoughts to? What do you think about? Anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Anything that has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without even a second thought. Anything you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have you, then I will feel my life as meaning. I will know that I have value. I will feel significant insecure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship, but the way the Bible describes it is idol worship, which is the second point. Idols demand our worship. And worship in this context is not singing. Just like worship at church isn't singing. Singing is an expression of worship. Worship is me orienting myself around a thing and finding my value, my sense of belonging, my sense of okayness with myself and with the world. It's the thing that speaks definitive words over me. So there's a lot of people that like can say something to you and it doesn't mean anything to you. But then there are some people who can say something to you and it can shatter you. It can completely undo you. And in a sense, that's just recognizing there are certain things that I esteem more. It's another Bible word. I esteem more. I exalt more. I hold a greater value. I, I worship. And idols demand our worship. And you and I are worshiping creatures. You're made to worship. You are hardwired by God to be a worshiper. It's in your instincts. You can't do anything about it. And your worship is constantly being stirred up. And I'm not talking about listening to some Bethel record. I mean like you are constantly being invited into the worship of something. Now, the people who know this better than anyone are marketers. Marketers understand that all they have to do, once they know the audience, and to know an audience is just to know the narrative a person's living in. That's what an audience, so it's not demographics. To know the person's, to know an audience is just to understand what is the narrative this person lives in? What is their understanding of the world and themselves and what is good and what is needed and so on? And once you know the narrative a person is in, all you have to do is begin to touch around the fringes of those idols. And we fill in the rest of the blanks. So in a car commercial where you see a couple, you know, attractive, well-dressed, sort of reclining in these leather captain seats as the car goes down a windy road and kicks up leaves. And we're just filling in all the blanks about comfort, comfort and luxury and uh, belonging and security. Or an iPhone commercial where you get the perfect trick-or-treat photo, and then the next one is about how secure it is, and you don't need to worry about your data. Or it's a person who's, uh, like a young person who opens a glass bottle of Coke and a party emerges um, from this bottle. Or I saw a commercial this week where a woman used Downing Unstoppables in her washing machine and then walked through the halls of her school where she was a teacher and was stopped by students who smelled her. Um, <laughs> and the thing is, is all of these, all of these are just getting to this basic idea that while we're 
we're most looking for, what we most want is the sense of, of, of acceptance. We're looking for a place of belonging. We're looking for comfort. We're looking for success. We're looking for achievement. And, and how are we going to get there? We're going to get there through this car. We're going to get there through the sort of social lifestyle. You're going to get this through some sort of secure, private, you know, thing, whatever. So you'll be the risk taker. You'll be the smart one. You'll be the good one. You'll be the one who enchants people with the smells coming from your body. Whatever it is, you're going you're gonna to get the thing you're looking for because I know the narrative you're living in, which is that you're looking for something transcendent because you're made for it. You're looking for something uh, that is larger than you. You're looking uh, for something that is uh, w- safe. And I'm going to tell you false ways to get there, and I'm going to stir worship up in you. And before you know it, you've daydreamed about this, you've thought about this with your money, you've considered what it would mean for you to have this. You maybe never even spend the money, but you have thought deeply about what would be true about you as you walked out of the store with it. And all of that, brothers and sisters, is called worship. It's called worship. Idols demanded of us. We don't even recognize it. We're doing it all the time all the time. It's because it's what they require of us. It's what Nebuchadnezzar required of people. Whenever you hear these 17 instruments playing at once, you must bow down. That's what it demands of you. And the thing is, we do this every day. Every day we wake up, and yours, your idols are different than mine. I mean, there's probably a lot of crossover in this room, but yours are slightly different than mine. And every day we wake up and we do it again. And we take, our, we take our questions to things that can't possibly answer them. And we demand an answer, and they fail us. Whether that's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a, a, something you're doing in school right now, whatever it is. A political ideology and party platform, we take our questions to these things, and they fail us. And the number one reason that most of us in here are unhappy right now is because we are asking something to be for us what it cannot be whether that's a person we're married to, whether that's a job we have, whether that's living in the city, whether it's having a certain kind of wardrobe, we are asking the thing to come through for us in a way it simply cannot. And that is why you and I, that is when you and I are most likely to punch out, to take care of ourselves, to bury ourselves in our phone, to drink too much, to eat too much, that. Because we've taken the question to a thing, it has failed to come through for us, and we despair. Because we didn't realize, but we had an idol and we had worshipped it and called it to be a thing for us that it couldn't possibly live up for, live up to, and it didn't. It turns out it didn't. And that cycle repeats daily for us. It repeats daily for us. Which brings us to the third point. Idols are a poor substitute for the reality that we are seeking. The story is, uh, captures this in sort of a humorous way. You have a golden uh, version of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to be uh, reflective and bright and large and imposing and majestic and godly. So he had to make a fake version of it. But then in the furnace with these three guys, it turns out there is a real living, golden, majestic, imposing, divine person walking around. And everything else is just a poor substitute for, uh, for that reality. Um, as C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity, he says, most people, if they have learned to look into their own hearts, they would know that they do want and want acutely something they, that cannot be had in this world. 
There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promises. The longings which arise in us when we first fell in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, they are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And I am not now speaking of what would be called ordinarily unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we have grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife. The hotels and the scenery may have been excellent. The chemistry may be a very interesting job. But something has evaded us. Or as he says elsewhere in the book, if I find therefore in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. At the end of 1 John, which uh, is a little book in the back of uh, the Bible, uh, it's a letter that this old man, the Apostle John, writes to a church in Ephesus. He was an elder at this church, uh, apparently, at some time. Anyway, he writes this letter, and he's, he's like in his 90s. He's very, very old when he wrote this. And so he's, you know, the great thing about getting to that age is that you just have a real economy with what you're saying because you're just not going to waste people's time, um, or your own, for that matter. And this is how he ends his letter to this church. He says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, the thing I really love about this text is John's word usage. So in the Greek language, there's a word for true. That is, almost every time you see the word true in the New Testament, that, that's, it's that Greek word. The word is aletheia. It's kind of, sometimes you see, meet people with like that name. It's a pretty name. Aletheia. It means true. And true in the sense of like, this is an honest representation of it. This is, this is, this, this is true, um, as we would use it. But he doesn't use aletheia here. And it's not because he doesn't know it. He uses that word other places. He uses the word alethenos, which actually means real or genuine. In other words, what John is doing as he's sort of coming in for a landing on this letter to these people he's never going to see again, he wants them to know, look, there are two ways to live this life. There is the real and the genuine to give yourself to, and then there is everything else. There is the pseudo, there is the false, there is the empty, or as he says simply, idols. There's two ways to live your life, he says, and I want you to know that we, God, God sent his son so that we may know that we are in him and he is the real thing. He is the real thing you're looking for. You're not going to find it somewhere else. He is the true God. He is the genuine one. He's the real, he's the real answer. He's what you're most seeking. And this promise of this story is that if you and I will believe that and lean into that, that in some way we will be vindicated. Now, the promise in this story is not that if you do that, you won't experience suffering in this life. It's not that at all. Um, not at all. And in fact, I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's moxie because Nebuchadnezzar's like, put him in the hottest fire that's ever been on the earth. And they're like, look, it's not up to us to decide like, whether or not God's going to deliver us. He may not, but even if he doesn't, know this, 
we will not bow our knee to that statue. We will not bow our knee to the gods of Babylon. I love it. And they could have very likely been thrown into the fire and been burned alive. And do you know why I know that? Because I've read the rest of the Bible. And there's a lot of times where people die in the Bible. There's a lot of times where they don't go walking around in a furnace. There's a lot of times where it just, it happens. That it's, that's it. They're just punished. In this instance, they want, Daniel wants us to know something, though. He wants us to know that in this instance, rather than having to wait, even on the other side of death, for the answer to their question, they got the answer right there, and they walked through the furnace with ultimate reality himself. They walked through the furnace with ultimate reality himself. But they did so because they first were willing to abandon the idol, which they could see, and take their life in their hands. They abandoned the thing they could see so that they could embrace the thing that they cannot see. And, and loved ones, that is really hard, right? Because it is so much easier to look at the thing that's right in front of me and to, and to weigh it down with promises and expectations and needs and demands. It is so much easier to do that and then to be frustrated again and again and again and again, but to continue to do it because what else am I going to do? It's so much easier in some ways to do that than to take the full weight of that need, of that desire, of that longing, and place it into the hands of an invisible thing and say, I need you to come through for me and then to wait. And that is actually the work of faith. That's what it means to be the church. It's not that we don't live in Babylon. It's not that we don't, uh, we don't live among the culture. It's not, that, it's not that we don't wear the clothes and sing the songs and eat the food. It doesn't mean that at all. But that the functional trust of the heart is on something greater. Something that other people say, at least I can see this. This is reality for me. And we say, yes, but it's just a shadow of reality. I, uh, I've been thinking about idolatry for like 15 years, and um, not just this week. And I, was, uh, I said this at the end of the last service, but I, I'm discouraged uh, in some ways to stand here and talk about idolatry and realize that the things that I was thinking about as far as idols in my life 10 and 15 years ago are still the things I'm thinking about today when I talk about idols in my heart. That's discouraging to me you would think that there might be some sort of, um, you know, new idols. And yet I just want to say to you, um, as we get ready to come to this table and to be fed by Jesus, to, to receive the Spirit, I just want to say this to you. These things that we talk about, these are huge things. They're like mountains, you know? We stand at the base of mountains and we look up and we go, how can we ever ascend to the top? And the invitation of Jesus is just to take the next step to believe that maybe actually I am further along today than I was 15 years ago and that things are a little bit more constructed, deconstructed and torn down than they were 15 years ago. But also to be kind to yourself and to recognize that the idols that you have in your life, let me just say this, the idols that are in your heart right now, they were not placed there overnight. They didn't, they didn't, it didn't happen yesterday. This is, these are ancient places where you've taken questions. These things that you've looked to to come through for you, that you've worshipped, that I've worshipped, these things have been there a long time. And the invitation of Jesus is always, just follow in my footsteps, take the next step, begin to address these things, see it for what it is, begin to see through it to the reality. Why don't we stand up together? Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. 
I'm Matthew Brown, the parish pastor here at Trinity in Decatur. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And you can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting our website, atltrinity.org. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Have a great week.